and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 139, The Day a Man Fell from the Sky. The second Japanese attack wave had just left Oahu. It was a quarter after 9 a.m. One pilot in particular, Naval Airman First Class Shigenori Nishikachi, had spent his 15 minutes of combat strafing Bellows Field on the eastern edge of Oahu, due east of Ford Island. But now that the attack was over, Nishikachi poured on the speed to escape any last-minute munitions that might come his way. True, he had not been set upon by any American warplanes, but small arms fire had sought him out as he dove strafing available targets. The other reason for his desire of speed and height was that he needed the freedom to search his aircraft, to find where that smell of gasoline was coming from. His A6M2 Zero fighter had served him well. In fact, it was one of the most advanced fighters in the world. But now, something seemed off. But now that he was among the clouds and had yet to spot a pursuing American fighter, he leveled off and pulled back from his maximum speed. With this done, he opened his canopy slightly to let the gasoline fumes escape. Thinking back to his attack runs, he remembered now the jolting that came when bullets hit his control stick, rudder bar, and amazingly, the seat below him. Surely it had to be small arms fire. Anything larger would have resulted in much greater damage. As he started to panic, he asked himself, was the damage enough to stop him from returning to his carrier, the Hiryu? Quieting his nerves, he looked over his gauges. They appeared to be functioning. He tested his flight controls. Again, everything seemed normal. Now for the rest of the plane. Looking left through his plexiglass canopy, the wing seemed fine. So he turned to his right, and that was when his heart stopped for a moment. From a small hole on the top of his right wing near the fuselage, there was a fine mist trailing out and disappearing behind him. Fuel. His mind racing, he wondered, was the third fuel tank placed just in front of his feet punctured as well? What about the exterior drop tank below him? Was that leaking too? Again, he checked the fuel gauges, yet they read normal. But what could he trust at this point, for clearly fuel was coming out of one of his tanks, just above the right wing? He opened his canopy a bit more. It seemed that some lucky American cowboy had aimed true. Nishikaichi retraced his steps from the point of takeoff. He had first used the fuel in his exterior drop tank, then switched to his fuselage tank just before his first run at Bellows. Between his flight south and his attacks, a third of his gasoline was gone. The Japanese pilots had it drilled into them to drop their exterior tank when they were engaging enemy fighters, but during the raid on Oahu, no Americans rose to challenge him, so he didn't release it. Was that to be his saving grace? Either way, whatever fuel was left, which he now knew he had no idea, would determine his next course of action. 
The Japanese high command had long ago adopted, and in all honesty, bastardized the samurai warrior code. It said that this amazing long-range fighter could never fall into enemy hands, nor could its pilot. Thus the decision was made for Nishikachi. The pilots had been ordered that if their planes were unable to return to the carrier group for whatever reason, they were to make for a small island west of Kauai. Kauai itself was about 80 miles northwest of Oahu and almost as large as the land that housed Pearl Harbor. But the little island 14 miles west of it, named Niihau, Nishikaichi's target, was not even one-fourth the size. And as it was remote, the Japanese submarine waiting there should have no problem picking up any pilots that were forced to land there. Nishikaichi made the necessary adjustments and headed for Niihau, also called the Forbidden Island. Niihau was not developed and privately owned, so little was known of it. On the other hand, little trouble was expected from the natives for any pilots that had to make for it. By a curious route, the entire island was the property of a Scottish family. Captain Francis Sinclair, retired from the Royal Navy, his wife Elizabeth and their children, had left Scotland and sailed to New Zealand in 1839. Their goal was to settle down and raise livestock. The family made the passage safely to New Zealand, but seven years later, Captain Sinclair was lost at sea. So Elizabeth, now in charge, sold their New Zealand property and sailed to Canada to again find a place of their own to raise cattle. Yet Canada's climate did not agree with Elizabeth, so she took her family back to Hawaii, this time to Oahu, in 1863. The current king of Hawaii was willing to sell to Elizabeth a part of Oahu, but she found nothing that pleased her. It was then that the king offered to sell her most of Niihau for $10,000 in gold. Though the Sinclairs were warned not to interfere with the locals' language or customs, the deal was made and the family set up their cattle ranch. Many of the locals who stayed when the rest of the island was purchased by the Sinclairs worked for the family. In time, Elizabeth's great-grandson, Aylmer Robinson, would become manager of the Niihau Ranch and the island's sole owner. In the mid-1930s, measles came to Niihau and killed 11 children and weakened others. In response, Aylmer closed off the island. No one was allowed to visit it without his express permission. But history wasn't done with Niihau quite yet. Brigadier General William Billy Mitchell, who in the future would be hailed as the father of the United States Air Force, was an early proponent of air power. It was he who was the first American to fly over enemy lines in World War I. Before the war was over, he led 1,500 planes on the largest bombing raid in history. And Billy felt so strongly that air power would become the dominant force that he predicted such stalwarts as battleships and land armies would become secondary elements. Mitchell never stopped shouting the benefits of air power 
not only to his superiors, but to the general press as well. In time, the military establishment would get their revenge on him by having him court-martialed in 1925. But at the time, General Mason Patrick, the chief of the air service, had come up with a more subtle way of silencing Billy. In 1923, Patrick offered him the chance to inspect foreign air powers in Asia. This Mitchell could not turn down, so he took his new bride along for the nine-month trip. Mitchell traveled to Hawaii, Midway, Guam, the Philippines, and Japan. And it was in Japan that Billy must have seen something that set his teeth on edge. For while he was on his way back, he began to write his report, and in that, Mitchell seemed to have access to a crystal ball. He predicted that Japan and the United States would war upon each other, that Japan would start this war by a sneak attack on American forces on the island of Oahu. He went on to guess that the attack would start early on a Sunday morning. Further, that while Oahu was being attacked, the Japanese would also invade the Philippines and the European-controlled areas in the Pacific. But even Mitchell could not predict that the Japanese Navy would have the temerity to send six carriers secretly to launch their attack. Instead, he wrote that they would establish a base on Midway and then transport their fighters and bombers to Niihau Island. It would be from there that Ford Island would be ravaged. Alas, as Mitchell had destroyed any goodwill with many of his superiors, the report was not taken as seriously as it could have been. Still, there were a few men who stood up for Mitchell during his court-martial, like Major Gerald C. Brandt and Major Henry Hap Arnold, among others. In early 1931, now that Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Brandt was made an air officer in the Hawaiian Department, becoming the commanding officer of the 18th Composite Wing of Fort Shatner on Oahu. In that same year, Japan invaded Manchuria. To Brandt, Mitchell's prediction seemed to be coming true, with the warlike Japanese empire expanding its influence with outright occupation. Did that mean Hawaii's time was coming? In between his duties, as Japan continued to expand into China proper, Brandt looked into the ownership of Niihau and found Almer Robinson's name. Sometime in 1933, the same year that Japan withdrew from the League of Nations for being chastised for its actions in China, Brandt met secretly with Robinson. It had to be a secret because the meeting was not sanctioned by the U.S. Army, as the reason why they met had only to do with Mitchell's predictions, which had been strenuously attacked. During their talks, Brandt showed Robinson parts of Mitchell's report, certainly the sections that regarded the island. A deal, or an agreement of some kind, seemed to have been made, as Robinson with his own money and time, began to have the island scarred with deep furrows. In the end, the island from above looked kind of like a checkerboard. A square of 100 feet each way was designated, 
and within it, furrows of two and a half feet wide and about 20 inches deep were crisscrossed, and this process was repeated over and over. That way, if any plane attempted to land, it would have its landing gear torn off, or the plane would flop over, ruining it and seriously injuring the pilot. This would be done to all parts of the island where a plane could possibly land. The following year, 1934, Brandt was stationed back in the States. In 1936, Billy Mitchell died. This left Robinson all alone to continue the task of making his island landing-proof. Japan's war within Asia continued to expand. During the last month of 1937, the Japanese Air Force bombed the American vessel Panay, a large U.S. Navy river gunboat, stationed along the Yangtze River as it was evacuating U.S. Embassy staff from Nanking. For Robinson, this was another sign that Mitchell's predictions were coming true. Up till now, the cross-furrowing of his island was being done by a horse-drawn plow, but there was still so much to do. So Robinson ordered a track from the Cleveland Tractor Company. The process to protect his island was about to be sped up. By the summer of 1941, the furrowing was complete. It had taken seven years and thousands of linear miles of furrows, but now the island would be most inhospitable to any aircraft trying to land. Of course, Billy Mitchell had been wrong about the island becoming a jump-off point for an attack on Ford Island, but it was still a part of Japan's overall attack strategy. At 7.15 a.m. on December 7, 1941, the second attack wave took off from their respective carriers. Nishikaichi was one of the nine zero fighters from the Hiryu. He was to go along Oahu's eastern edge towards the Kaneohe Naval Air Station. There were the Americans' PBY patrol seaplanes, which had to be destroyed. The patrol planes, if left undamaged, might be able to locate the carriers and direct any American counterthrust. Next, the Zeros would make for Bellows Field further south. On their way back, they could, if needed, hit Kaneohe again before returning to the carrier fleet. Around 9 a.m., Nishikachi and the other seven Zeros reached Bellows Field. As the Americans there had received reports from Kaneohe and Hickam, about the surprise attack. The three planes at Bellows were refueled and rearmed. Nishikachi and his fellow pilots spotted the Americans running towards the planes, so dove down on them, wanting to make sure they never left the ground. One Zero strafed 2nd Lieutenant Hans Christensen as he was climbing into his cockpit. Christensen was killed just before he could be strapped in. Pilot Officer First Class Tasukuo Matsuyama lowered his zero at Second Lieutenant George Whiteman just as his P-40 had just left the tarmac. Matsuyama was being followed by his wingman, Pilot Officer First Class Toshio Makinoda. The damage done to the P-40 caused Whiteman to crash on the beach. 
and Whiteman died in that crash. Matsuyama then went after 2nd Lieutenant Samuel Bishop. Bishop managed to lift off, but then stayed low, over the waves, hoping to avoid detection. His plan was to gain maximum speed, and only then to climb to an attacking height. But Matsuyama stayed with Bishop, and using his superior speed, attacked the American. Bishop was wounded and forced to ditch his plane. Though injured, he swam back to shore. The attack on Bellows had lasted 15 minutes, and in its wake was death and destruction. The surprised Americans had not been able to put up too much of a fight, but as Nishikachi would soon find out, some of the returning small arms fire had found his plane. Nishikachi was heading north to the upper part of Oahu. When he reached its tip, he could either continue on and hope he had enough fuel to reach his carrier, or he could turn left and make for Ni'ihau. But between the damage sustained to his craft and the holes in some, or maybe all, of his three tanks, the pilot did not know how much fuel he had left, or whether he could trust his instruments. And though brave and willing to die for his emperor, the smarter move seemed to be to travel the shortest distance, i.e. Ni'ihau, to the west. And now that he was on the northern edge of Oahu, it was safe to make his turn, as he would now not have to worry about passing over the Kula Mountains on the eastern side of the island, which would have used up even more fuel. However, Nishikachi, it seemed, was not the only pilot to make for Ni'ihau. As one Ni'ihau native later claimed, I was outside my house just before lunchtime. They had just finished a church service. When I saw these two planes fly over, one looked like it was in trouble, and the other one was flying all around it. Then this first plane goes down into the ocean. The other one flies around for some time, and then goes away. Now, it's highly plausible that the second plane had enough fuel to make it back to his carrier, but was following his damaged comrade so as to be able to make a report about his status to his superiors. Either way, the second plane never regrouped with the fleet, according to post-war Japanese records. Just minutes after spotting these two planes, Nichikachi's plane then made an appearance. As he had probably missed spotting the two other planes, his attention had to be focused on locating the sub that was to pick him or any other pilots up who had come this way. The submarine I-74, commanded by Masayuki, was to be just off the southernmost point of Ni'ihau, and that's where Nishikachi turned the nose of his plane to. As the records conflict about when I-74 was on station and when it departed, it is not known whether it was there at the time Nishikachi needed it to be there. Either way, the pilot could not locate the sub, despite several flyovers. But by now, the damage done to his plane, or its lack of fuel, demanded an immediate landing. By the time he gave up on the sub, it was too late to head for the beach for a landing there. By now, Nishikachi had spotted the furrowed grounds, 
so knew his choices of a landing spot would be few. Not that it mattered, as his plane made the decision for him. It started to descend for the last time. Even before he reached the ground, the engine gave up. It was to be a dead stick landing, basically a controlled crash. Nishikachi had the good fortune to be flying against the wind, so planned on coming down as slow as he possibly could. Also, there was a relatively open area in between a few houses that would have to do. Even better, in between these houses, the land was not furrowed, just covered with tall grass. So, coming down, he pulled back his canopy, put down his flaps, and then his landing gear. The external gas tank below him was still intact, but it's not known if he chose to leave it attached, hoping its drag-inducing would help slow the plane down, or by now, the corrosion from being exposed to the salt air had damaged its release mechanism. But what Nichikachi could not know was that that patch of ground he was making for was not furrowed because of all the large rocks in the area, now hidden by the grass. As the plane came down, it was unable to clear a wire fence, which was dragged along with the plane when it made contact with the ground. By then, the right wing's landing gear strut, the wheel below the wing, was caught by a large rock. The plane spun to the right and slowed down considerably. The now-empty drop tank was also ripped out of place. Between the wire fence and the rocks, the plane came to a rest after skidding along for only 70 feet. Just before the plane crash-landed, Niihau Loko Hawila Kela Ohano, the owner of one of the nearby houses, was standing in his front yard. At first, he realized that something was wrong as his horse became agitated. But before he could think any further, Nishikachi's plane came charging down. After it came to a stop, only 30 feet from the man, Hawila snapped out of his trance and ran to the plane. Jumping up on the wing, he looked down on the stunned man, who seemed to be reaching for his pistol. As the pilot was still dazed, it was without much effort that Hawila took the pistol away. Hawila then helped the man out of his plane, but in doing so, some of the pilot's papers, as well as a map, fell out. Hawila gathered these up as well. Of course, no one on Nihihau knew of the Pearl Harbor attack, but between the crash landing, the pilot being a foreigner, and the obvious bullet holes in his plane, something was not right. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, um, as you've probably noticed, we're on a new storyline now for the membership episodes. As far as the one that I was doing, uh, Nazism and Hitler and mysticism and the occult, um, I don't know. I just wasn't feeling it. I might go back. If I can find something that's really interesting, I might go back to it. But um, I don't know. You can you can email me and let me know what you, what you thought of it, because you're members. You can certainly do that. You... You can tell me if there's something you want me to cover or whatever, but just feel free to 
you know, send me an email, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Did you like it? Or are you happy that I switched? But if I, again, if I find something interesting, I'll, I'll revisit it. But for right now, I found this little gem of a story about this lone pilot who has to crash land on this island. So anyway, so we'll do this for a couple of episodes and, and then we'll see. So feel free to write me. Um, but uh, I just I just wanted to change it up. Um, so I'll, I'm v- trying very hard to get caught up. So I will keep putting out membership episodes singularly until I get caught up. Uh, very sorry about that, but working on it hard. I hope everybody has a safe and wonderful and successful 2019.